the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Technology means progress, and it has for a long, long time. But progress for whom? The current tech explosion is concentrating an awful lot of the benefits and power of technology in the hands of the very few. Today we'll talk with an MIT professor and author whose new book suggests it doesn't have to be that way. A thousand-year struggle with the progress of technology could produce more prosperity if we just harness it differently. We'll discuss next on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. If you think about it, the last thousand years of human existence has really been shaped and defined by technology and how it advances. It was agriculture first, mechanizing the growth and gathering of food and fiber for clothing brought mankind from a rough age of survival to a more serene existence. Industry was next, and it eventually boomed, especially in places like Detroit, to make our lives more robust and give us more control over our environments. The car, the glorious mechanical carriage whose mass production shrank the map of the world and gave us physical connection we couldn't otherwise imagine, is probably our most familiar example here in southeast Michigan. Today, we've got lots of technological innovation going on, and the boom is now crowded into stuff we carry with us all the time. You've heard me talk before about how the word phone is now an anachronistic term for the devices we use for all kinds of communication and life ordering. Giants like Amazon and Google and Netflix now dominate our data and our lives to extremes that, yes, make life a lot easier. But what's the goal of all this technology, other than making our day-to-day lives better? Isn't the real goal supposed to be making things better in a grander sense for everyone? There are real questions about whether that's happening at all. Inequality is not just persisting, it's growing. And the concentration of the benefits and power of technology in the hands of the wealthy and the connected, it's accelerating, even as more and more is possible because of that technology. So what to do? Can we continue creating technology without widening the inequalities that it seems to be fueling? And if so, how do we do that? And who has control over whether that happens? A little later in the program, we're going to talk with a reporter about contract negotiations that are just getting going between the UAW and the Detroit Three automakers and the way workers are banding together to make sure that their incomes are protected despite the sector shifting to electrical vehicles and lots of other trouble that the automakers face. But before we get there, we want to have a bigger conversation about the struggle with technology and inequality. We've got someone with us who is thinking a lot about these things. Darren Asamoglu is a professor of economics at MIT, and he explores both the history of what progress is and how technology shapes it in his new book, Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. Professor Asamoglu, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me on the program. I'm excited to be here. So let's start 
with this. Progress. It's a word that you use in conjunction often with the idea of technology and technological advancement. Let's talk about what progress is and whether progress has come from technological development. Well, you know, progress should be in quotation marks. Progress for whom? Right. If we have better widgets, better computation power, much, much more intelligent machines, is that progress? I think progress, in a broad sense, should mean something more than that. Shared prosperity, something that lifts us all above poverty, above drudgery. It should also mean meaningful lives for people. After all, if we have abundance materially, but our lives become meaningless, that's not great for humanity either. So the question, exactly like you posed it, progress for whom and in what way? And I think the reason why Simon Johnson and I wrote the book is because we are concerned that these questions are not being asked sufficiently in the midst of the euphoria about all these new digital technologies and artificial intelligence. I want to talk about the kind of pain and suffering that can and does come from technology. Job replacement, job loss, hyper-surveillance, disconnection, and isolation. What do you think that's causing? What's causing that? Is it a result of the technology itself, or are these reflections of our cultural issues and the way they play out through technologies? Which, which is it, or is it a mix of both, maybe? I think it's mostly about how we use technologies and who controls them. And I think to understand this question, we have to step back and look at the history of technology. And when we do that, it is not an easy process to understand, partly because we need to have two potentially conflicting ideas in our minds at the same time. One is that we are fortunate to be living in the 21st century compared to our great-great-great-grandparents. We are the children of technology, the industrialization process that started somewhere in the midst of the in the middle of the 18th century, you know, ultimately brought much greater comfort, much better health, much greater levels of prosperity to most of us, especially to those of us who, live, who are fortunate enough to live in the Western world. But there was no necessity that it would go this way. And for about 100 years, most people in Britain suffered in terms of their health, they lost autonomy, they started working much harder, their real incomes did not increase, their living conditions changed in ways that made them completely discombobulated. So it wasn't easy process and it was a struggle that actually started improving things for them. Democracy, trade unions that started uh, defending the rights of workers and a direction of technology that was better for workers and for regular people in terms of, for example, building better infrastructure. So we have to think about how we are using our scientific knowledge and what types of technologies we are developing. And these questions are actually even more important in the age of AI. So you compare today to 250 years ago, saying we're living in an age that is even more blindly optimistic and more elitist about technology than the times of Jeremy Bentham, Adam Smith, and Edmund Burke. Talk about why those folks uh, were blindly optimistic at the time, and why are we in a period where elites are even more naive than back then? Well, you know, our the subtitle of our book is Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. And that subtitle is meant to convey the idea that technology is not neutral, it's not some sort of manna from heaven that's going to benefit us all. We have to work at it. And there are always going to be conf con conflicting, contradictory visions about where to take technology and who's going to benefit from it. Always, when there are major technological transitions, the cotton gin, the car, industrialization, agriculture, there are those who are hugely optimistic about what it will deliver. 
often they represent or they are somehow uh, working with or have internalized the values of the group's entrepreneurs that are benefiting from it. So in the early phases of the British Industrial Revolution, it was a rising middle class, in some ways very inspiring set of people who were coming from relatively modest backgrounds and making tremendous discoveries and entrepreneurial advances. But at the same time, they weren't very much interested in the conditions of the working people. And many of the important philosophers and economists of the era were sympathetic to them, were from their ranks, or had internalized their values. And while they were articulating some very important advances in our humanities, they were also hugely optimistic about what this process of progress would bring. And in this way, they were actually blinded to the suffering that were among uh, that were around them. So as late as 1840s, Almost 100 years after the beginning of the application of textile machinery and steam power, there were children as young as five or six working 18 hours a day, pushing carts with their heads in deep mines under conditions that were horrible. So people who were talking of the automatic process of progress were ignoring that reality among them. Now, things are not as bad today. We are so fortunate that we don't have horrible child labor. We don't have slavery. We don't have huge amounts of repression in workplaces. But we are in the midst of a type of economic growth that has left a lot of people behind. You know, you're in Detroit. Detroit, especially working people in Detroit, those without the college degree have not benefited to the same extent that, you know, engineers and software developers in Silicon Valley have benefited from these new advances. But these advances are also sort of mind-boggling in some ways. Intelligent machines, a huge amount of data, new widgets. And that has made people, including journalists, tremendously optimistic and ignore all of the difficulties of creating shared prosperity from these new technologies that are very disruptive as well. And by disruption, it's opposed to Silicon Valley. I don't mean a good thing. Disruption is not a good thing. I'm talking with Daron Asimoglu. He is a professor of economics at MIT and co-author of the book Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. Uh, we'd love to have you, the listeners, be part of the conversation. Give us a call. Let us know what you make of the role of technology in society today. How much better off do you think we are because of things like cell phones or social media the recent developments of things like chat GPT and other AI software, and of course, the cars we drive, which are essentially rolling computers these days. How should we be using technology to make the lives of everyone better off? And what drives that kind of progress? What kind of things create more shared prosperity from technology, and how do we create those things? 313-577-1019 is always the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the in the conversation that way. Uh, Professor Asimoglu, I want to talk about now I want to talk about the things that we are seeing with technology and the concentration of the wealth and power of technology in the hands of fewer and fewer people, I guess is how I would would describe it. Um, what are we to make of the giants, the tech giants, and their role in inequality? Facebook, Twitter, uh, Amazon, Google, Netflix, these humongous, humongous companies that are creating things, no question, that are making our lives more interesting and easier. But as you point out, inequality is something that's getting worse. Uh, and the people who are in charge of those companies are getting, are leaning into that inequality, right? They're getting much, much, much wealthier as other people fall behind. Give us a, an assessment of, of the tech landscape right now. Look, I mean, you've put it exactly right. John Rockefeller would be envious 
the kinds of wealth concentration and the size of companies that we are witnessing right now, they are unparalleled in history. And you have it exactly right. These companies are super creative. They have some of the best engineers and scientists in the world. They have visions of creating completely new ways of organizing our lives and production. But as a result, they and their employees are capturing most of the gains, partly because of lack of regulation, partly because of lack of democratic control, worker voice, but also because of the specific vision that they have charted and much of the media and intelligentsia of this country has signed up with, which is that what we want is a future of intelligent machines that are going to do all sorts of things instead of us. And part of the reason why Simon Johnson and I wrote the book is because we don't think that's the right vision for the future. First, in history, shared prosperity emerged when new technologies targeted increasing worker productivity rather than work replacing workers. And second, we actually think that the future of AI and the future of our society would be much brighter if we find a way of using these advances in order to make workers more productive, empower workers and citizens, not disempower them. And we also think looking at the scientific literature and talking with engineers and computer scientists, that this is in fact a, quite a feasible direction. There's nothing inevitable, nothing preordained about a future in which a few companies are going to collect massive amounts of data and are going to make all the decisions for us and are going to replace all sorts of workers, blue collar and white collar ones. In fact, if we do that, we're not going to have a democracy. We're not going to have shared prosperity. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Professor Daron Asimoglu of MIT about his new book, Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. also want to get going with you, the listeners, on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019. Call and tell us what you think about the current tech era. What is it doing other than making things easier for us? Is it exacerbating the social and economic inequality that we all live with? How do we turn that around? How do we make it something that narrows the gaps between the haves and the have-nots? We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. about technology, what effect it has on our collective lives, not just our individual lives. Is it making the inequality that we see around us worse? Our guest is Professor Daron Asimoglu. He is a professor of economics at MIT. He's co-author of a book titled Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle over technology and prosperity. We also want to hear from you, of course, on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number here. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation that way. Let's start today with Sally in West Bloomfield. Sally, welcome to the show. Oh, hi. Can you hear me okay? We sure can. Okay. Uh, Good morning. Yes, um... I listen to you a lot driving in my car in the morning, and this just uh, captured my attention. I um, I also listen to Democracy Now, mm-hmm. and it's a wonderful report. Um, mm-hmm. I watch it on YouTube. And recently there was um, an author interviewed. He wrote a book called Cobalt Red, and it was all about the cobalt mines in the Congo. Mm. And just devastating to see some of the footage and the reporting he covered on these basically slave labor. I mean, these people are getting paid a dollar a day, children as young as five, and just devastating working conditions. 
in mines as large, and this is a quote, as large as the city of London. And this is one of the main ingredients in our rechargeable battery. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this, I, I, you know, I benefit from technology in the broad sense in so many ways, and we all do. And I am stuck in the matrix. I, I'm directly <laughs> benefiting from this. But when I see reports like this, I think this, this needs to be brought to, to the light, to everyone's attention. Huge companies are benefiting from this supply chain from the very bottom, kids digging with their hands in the earth. And, you know, this is something that needs to be focused on. And I'd just love to hear the professor's opinion on that. Sure. Yeah. Sally, I'm glad you called. Thanks so much for the question, Professor Asimoglu. uh, What about the way in which technology is created these days and the inequality that exists around the manufacturer, the, 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 the mining, the, the, the creation of the materials that we need for all the great gadgets that we have. Well, thank you, Sally. That's a very, very important set of issues you've brought up. You know, I was perhaps a little bit too quick to say, well, we don't have the horrors of 1840s with children <laughs> five as young as five and six. Well, I meant in the United States and the industrialized world, but yes, Today, you cannot think of technology, you cannot think of production without taking the global supply chain into account. And parts of that global supply chain are still horrible. I think the worst ones are exactly what you've pointed out. Some of the mining of minerals in uh, Africa. But when you look at labor repression in parts of Asia, It's also quite bad, and many companies, either in creating the technology, such as batteries and many of the other uh, high-tech widgets, or applying that technology into consumer durables, such as cell phones or or, or other uh, things that we depend on, use those global supply chains. And I think we need to have a holistic way of thinking about what we are doing more broadly. But of course, Global issues, international issues are so much harder. What I'm talking about for the United States today is already a big challenge because we live in a highly polarized world where people have become disinterested from politics. It's very difficult to imagine people coming around a radical reform agenda in order to improve the direction of technology and how it is being used and who's benefiting from it. And when you start talking about how we can change the international division of labor, that's that's much harder. But I think the sort of customer consumer pressure on companies that has played some role, for example, in reducing their carbon footprint, that can be applied in order to make sure that many of the leading companies in the United States do not exploit labor around the world indirectly. And I think that's a very important set of issues. Thank you for bringing it up. Sure, sure. Uh, We had another caller, Madeline, who couldn't stay on the line, but she said, we're never concerned about environmental consequences, particularly with regard to coal. I think what what she's getting at is that there is a, a, a climate consequence for a lot of the creation of the technology that we have, the disposal of some of the uh, technology that we have, and that's another dimension of, I think, what you're pointing out in your book. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and it's another very, very important question. And it actually highlights the sort of choice centrality that I have emphasized. What are we doing with these new advances. We have a climate emergency, and the best way of getting out of it is actually to use technology. We've already made important advances in renewables. We need to do more. We need to build better storage technology. We need to have better ways of dealing with agriculture and urban planning. All of these are social and technological challenges. But instead, we come up with new ways of increasing our energy consumption, such as, you know, cryptocurrencies that are hugely wasteful. And we ignore, for example, the energy demands for some of the very large AI models, 
we don't know exactly how bad they are, and I think in the future they'll be better. But you know, there is it's so commonplace in Silicon Valley to hear people say AI is going to solve the climate change challenge. Well, I think anything can help the climate change challenge, but we have to always make sure that we don't become techno utopians and instead always ask the question, you know, what are the resources that we are consuming and who's paying the price for it? Thank you for bringing it up. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I want to talk a little more about how we reach shared progress. Um, why were there so many good available jobs in the 40s through the 1970s, regardless of one's education level? And now we see increasingly you've got to have a higher education to get uh, skilled labor jobs. Things have, have shifted pretty significantly. Talk about why that's, why that's happened and, that, and how that affects the idea of shared prosperity. I think that is so crucial. But let me emphasize this. The 30, 35 years that followed World War II were really striking. The United States had very rapid economic growth, and so did many of the other uh, industrialized nations. But it wasn't just the speed of that progress. It was how shared it was. If you look at real wages, for workers from all education backgrounds. They're growing in tandem. Low education workers are actually increasing their real incomes faster than those with college degrees. And why is that? Well, it really had two big pillars. One is that we used technology not just to replace workers, but to also create new tasks, new functions, new productivities for the workers. So in factories, you see numerically controlled machinery, but at the same time, employers are training their employees in order to operate more complex machinery, to do inspection tasks, maintenance, design. So it is a pro-worker direction of technology. And of course, underpinning that, there was worker voice, unions, the democratic process, so it wasn't like a few people were deciding everything, including the direction of technology and who would benefit from increases in uh, productivity. And the reason why, simply put, things are very different today is that starting in the late 1970s, early 1980s, both of these pillars came undone. We have a much greater imbalance of power between employers and technologists and workers. And the direction of technology went much more into disempowering workers via automation, data collection, surveillance, than finding ways of making workers more productive. Hmm. So um, what's the role of the free market in both incentivizing innovation and getting more people into high-paying jobs? We live in a nation that is capitalist in its economic profile, and I, I think some of what you're talking about maybe bumps up against the idea of letting the market decide these things rather than government maybe uh, you know interfering and and forcing things in a direction that the market might not may, might not favor how do you how do you balance those things well i i love the market economy i don't think there's any feasible alternative to the market economy broadly construed Central planning didn't work, and I don't think we should be surprised that it should it didn't work. And the evidence from you know thousands of years of history is that some sort of market process is critical for innovation. You stifle innovation if you let you know dictators, bureaucrats, uh, other people from the top decide what should be invented. But that doesn't mean extreme market fundamentalism. We have done very well when the market economy was embedded in the right set of regulations and laws, and it had a democratic input about what people wanted, especially about how progress should be shared. So let me give you an example. The fact that we say the market is very good in making advances in nuclear technology, which it was, many of these 
amazing things came out of the market process. Doesn't mean that the government didn't have a role. Of course, in nuclear weapons, the government had a role. But it also doesn't mean that the people should not have a voice. People did have a voice and they said, we don't want nuclear weapons. And that was one of the limits to nuclear armaments and finally, you know, leading to uh, uh, sort of limits on nuclear proliferation. So we need to balance the market process with the right sets of regulations. And that becomes even more important when we're dealing with mega companies that are huge and they have so much market power and they have so much power about the future of technology. And we also have to have some way of having worker voice in there. I'm not saying we should go back to the age of old style unions that had their own failings and that's certainly not going to be appropriate for a future where a lot more people are going to be in offices or in knowledge work. But how can we talk about AI, which is going to influence the type of jobs, the livelihood of millions and millions of people in the United States and billions of people around the world. But the decision is between senators and uh, CEOs of the tech companies in Silicon Valley. Where is worker voice? And that's actually as crucial as the decision when it comes to what are we going to do with nuclear technology? Are we going to use it for peaceful purposes? Are we going to use it to make bombs. I think we need some sort of voice from the rest of us. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about big tech and the idea of breaking it up. That's that's something that a lot of people have have forwarded as an idea, as a way to to stop the the inequality, the exacerbation of inequality that tech is is causing. In your estimation, is that is that a solution? Is that something we should really be thinking about? And how do you do that in what is, again, a capitalist market economy? Well, first of all, we should definitely be thinking about it. As I said, these are the largest companies humanity has ever seen. Mm-hmm. And we have the tools for dealing with it. First of all, many of these companies have become so large, not because they innovatively created new products, but because they acquired other companies. In many cases, they acquired competitors. All of the largest tech companies have been very active in acquiring, taking over competitors. And in many cases, they take their technologies and put them aside so that there is no competition against them. Today, Meta is so big because it has acquired Instagram and WhatsApp. So I think with a different sort of regulatory approach, the U.S. government and the, the, the Department of Justice could have said, no, these are going to create huge monopolies in social media and we should not allow them. And in the same way, some of those acquisitions can be reversed. But also I want to emphasize that while it is important to have this conversation about breaking up the big tech because it has so much political power, because it is so dominant about the future of technology, that by itself is not going to be a solution. So if you break up Meta and have a separate Facebook, separate WhatsApp, separate Instagram, that's not going to be a magic solution to our problems. Those companies are going to behave in the same way. They're going to collect an enormous amount of data. They're going to have a business model centered on digital ads. And as a result, they're going to try to make people outraged and emotionally uh, triggered so that they spend more time on their platforms. So I think we need a more holistic way of thinking how we're going to regulate these very new technologies and not just in social media, also when it comes to creating new tools for the production process. Okay, uh, Professor Daron Asimoglu of MIT and author of the book Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. It was really great to have you here with us to talk about your work. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Thank Today. You. Thank you. It was uh, my, my pleasure. Thank you. When we come back, we're going to continue a conversation about the way technology is shaping society and specifically the way it's altering contract negotiations between the UAW and the big three. All three Detroit automakers are in contract talks with the UAW and it is possible that there would be a strike against all three automakers, something that hasn't happened in many, many decades. We're going to talk with Kaylee Hall, or an auto reporter for the Detroit News, who has been covering those contract negotiations next. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. 
Your neighborhood. Your community. Your voice. Join the conversation on 1019 WBET. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for joining. We have been talking about how Americans can use technology to create more shared prosperity. A big part of that dynamic, according to some, is strong unions. United Auto Workers is, of course, one of the largest unions in North America. And for the past week, the UAW has been starting off their negotiations with the Detroit Three automakers. In the negotiations, they're advocating for better treatment inside the workplace, the need for cost of living allowances, higher wages, and more secure retirement plans. And all of this is happening in an age of continued change in the industry. Automation, a switch to the production of electric vehicles, The auto industry is in a lot of flux right now, which makes these negotiations just a little more delicate. And the possibility of a strike, a strike perhaps of all three Detroit automakers, a little more likely. To talk about all this, we've got Kaylee Hall here with us. She is an auto reporter for the Detroit News, and she is going to be reporting on the UAW contract negotiations. Kaylee, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. Also, just a heads up, a lot of our employees here at WDET are part of the UAW. So I want to start with UAW President Sean Fain talking about some of the concerns that UAW members going into the contract negotiations are putting out there. Let's take a listen to what he has to say. You know, our members have worked through a pandemic. You know, we've dealt with the inflation crisis the last few years. And, you know, and let's not forget, these companies have been making massive profits. They've made over a quarter of a trillion dollars in the last decade. And meanwhile, conditions have remained stagnant for our workers. So, uh, you know, our workers aren't asking for the moon. They're asking for their fair share in this economy and in this industry and to keep things going. So very reasonable position being taken there by the president of the UAW. But I want to back up a little who is Sean Fain? He is newish in this job. Uh, we're trying pretty hard to get him to come in here and sit down and talk with us and our, our our listeners. We haven't been successful quite yet, but but give us a sense of who he is and what mission he brings to the presidency at the UAW. Yeah, so Sean Fain is the first directly elected president of the UAW. He won the election against uh, Ray Curry in, I believe that was March. I don't know. These months keep flying by. <laughs> um, so he is from a different uh, caucus. He's from a different um, political party within the UAW. Um, it's the first time that we've had somebody in that position, not from the uh, Ruther Administrative Caucus. And, you know, he's he's running the show a bit differently from what we've seen. Um, so instead of shaking the hands with the CEOs like we've seen in, you know, past negotiations, he decided to go to the plants and shake the hands of the workers uh, to kick off talks uh, last week and then yesterday with General Motors. So, you know, he's um, he's. I would say more aggressive in his tone towards the companies, mm-hmm. in fact, calling them the enemy at times. Um, and he's really trying to set a different, uh, like I said, a different tone with with the companies um, when he's engaging with his members. Yeah. So yeah. So so let's let's stop and talk just a little about how important it is that Sean Fain is the first directly elected president mm-hmm. <laughs> of the UAW. A little history there. Yeah. That's that's a huge change. Yes. Yeah, so. Everybody may recall that there was a little bit of an investigation into the UAW, mm-hmm. led to multiple convictions, and that led to an agreement with the federal government. And the government said, you have to ask your members if they want direct elections instead of a delegate election system. The members said yes. And so we had uh, the first direct election in the UAW, and it completely changed the the executive board. Um, you know, we like I said, we had the admin caucus running the show, and now we don't. We have the other side, this mm-hmm. um, uh, the the Unite um, Workers for Democracy side, and it they are definitely different from 
from the admin caucus <laughs> and that they are not going to continue what has been done, like I said, with the handshakes and um, I guess being slightly chummy with the <laughs> with the automakers. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's definitely a change. I think it was surprising to some to see that 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 they all many of them won. <laughs> but um, who votes when you want change? The people who want change. Yeah. Right? So. Yeah. So so all of that, of course, casts a really different light on the beginning of the negotiations, of mm-hmm. course, but also on the negotiations themselves. Uh, give us a sense of what the union is yeah. going to expect from the automakers and, and how likely it is that this doesn't get to a contract without conflict. Well, the experts I talked to put it in the range of 90% chance of a strike. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, a strike, uh, 90% of a chance of a strike against all three. Yes, uh, lower for Ford, mm-hmm. because Ford has historically had a better relationship with the UAW. But what you have is Stellantis, um, you know, they have a plant called Belvedere that they have idled, um, and so they're upset about that. GM has uh, the big question mark for GM is this battery plant that they're the only one of the Detroit three to have an operating battery plant that is in fact organized mm-hmm. by the UAW, but it's co-owned by LG. It's a joint venture plant. They don't have a contract yet. And the thinking is that they, the UAW will try to push that plant into the master agreement. Um, those workers make 1650 an hour to start half, pretty much half of what a worker at a regular GM plant makes. So that's a big question mark. Um, so, we don't know who the lead company is going to be. Um, it could be Stellantis, could be Geo, it could be any three of them. I could make a case for any of them, and we'll find that out after Labor Day is typically the the course of events. Yeah. So they're starting to do some negotiating now, and then the real um, intense negotiating starts in September, and then the contract, of course, expires September fourteenth. So. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking with uh, Kaylee Hall. She's a reporter for the Detroit News. She has been reporting on the UAW contract negotiations with the Detroit three automakers just underway. And the expectation is that they will be a little more contentious than they have been in recent years. And the possibility of a strike, maybe even a strike against all three Detroit automakers, something that hasn't happened in an awfully long time, uh, seems higher this time than in recent years. We would love to hear from you as well during the conversation. Give us a call and let us know if you're a member of the UAW and what you make of the new leadership in the union. Uh, Sean Fain is the new president of the UAW, the first directly elected president of the UAW. Do you like the tone he's striking? Uh, a little more combative with the automakers as these talks get started. Uh, what do you think of the prospect of a strike? Uh, if you're someone who works for one of the Detroit Three automakers or just in the industry, give us a sense of how you think uh, workers are being treated these days. Is pay what it should be? Are the benefits what they should be? What's the retirement look like? Uh, or do you think those things could and should be better? 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation that way. Uh, in an op-ed in the Detroit Free Press last month, Ford CEO Jim Farley said that they really care about their employees and that the average UAW-represented worker at Ford brings home worth of wages and benefits per year. Really important distinction there. That's not their salary. That's (laughs) the entire cost uh, of the company for those employees. Uh, But but give us a sense of how the UAW responded to this particular comment. Yeah, well, you may have seen that Chuck Browning, um, the UAW vice president who is head of the Ford Department, responded to that particular op-ed and he basically you know he 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 provided an example of a worker who you know you don't just make that amount off the bat mm-hmm. you know you do have to work um i think it's like an eight-year prog- progression right to get to the top pay and the top pay come september will be 32 32 an hour um so he pointed out that many of the workers are not at that top level and that they do struggle to make ends meet at times mm-hmm. and um you know, it, that's 
come, you know, September and right now, they're going to be fighting for the end of the, the tier situation and uh, temp usage. And the whole goal is to make, you know, the job economically equal mm-hmm. for all of the workers. You know, I talked to one worker who said he, his view is that after 90 days, you go straight to the top because you're making the same product. Um, GM has something very interesting happening inside of its its plants where they have a lower paid subsidiary workforce. That'll be another question mark of what happens with that workforce um, with these contract talks because their contract also expires at the same time, mm-hmm. which is not a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, the workers, many of them on the ground, they want to see equal pay for equal work. So, and and how how amenable will the companies be to that idea, especially as these contract talks get further into into the cycle and as they m- maybe bump up against contract expirations and the threat of a strike? Yeah, I mean, I think the companies, um, you know, their goal is to make money, right? And uh, they need to be competitive to make money. So uh, their competitors, Toyota, Honda, Volkswagen, Tesla, they are not unionized and they don't have to deal with, you know, they will argue that their labor costs are higher and that they don't have to, um, those companies don't have to, uh, you know, deal with the UAW contracts. So the the UAW needs to keep in mind they have to keep them competitive in order to uh, stay in business, frankly. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the list of things that the UAW wants, we'll see. We'll see what they can achieve. Cola is the big question mark. Many sure. people don't think that that's possible because the uh, the automakers will argue, well, we've provided thousands of dollars in profit sharing checks, um, which have been beyond what Cola would have provided. Yeah. So. And Cola is a cost of living increases yes. that uh, that are built into the contracts, right? Right, yeah. right. I, I want to talk about the industry as well and the, the automakers, how they're doing. As I said in the open, it's a kind of a strange time for for the automakers. There's mm-hmm. a lot of things that are changing, changing very fast. Uh, automation and uh, electrification of, of, of cars, I think, are probably the, the, the top concerns. But you also have uh, chip shortages still going on and, and difficulty yeah. w- making things in this country so that uh, they, can, they can move things quicker off the lot. Uh, mm-hmm. How do those things affect these talks and will the UAW be asked to to be patient I guess with the, the automakers as they try to figure out what business models look like right. not just now but in the future yeah I mean I think all of our eyes were opened by the pandemic right in terms of supply um, and the automakers especially because of the chip shortages and other supplies that we uh, struggled getting. Um, thankfully, you know, our inventories are getting built back up a bit. But um, yeah, I think right now what you're seeing is a lot of vertical integration. So you're seeing a lot of the automakers bringing in the supply that previously, you know, they, they may have not have done that. But because of what they've they saw during the pandemic and also because of, of, of government subsidies supporting the, this whole process, um, you know, they are constructing their own battery plants or they're building them, you know, with partners and they're also, uh, you know, General Motors is is aligning themselves with all of these different battery material suppliers to make sure that they have enough to make the electric vehicles they intend to make um, over the next few years. So it definitely is. I mean, they're spending billions of dollars in this transition. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, I am sure that when they meet with the, the UAW, they will explain that mm-hmm. <laughs> in depth and explain that, you know, we, we also – this is like turning a massive ship around, sure. right? And so we have to figure out what this looks like and what it looks like for the workforce um, and what it looks like in terms of the footprint of of the automakers. Um, they they expect, I think, over the next decade to need the plants that they have now. Um, but how those plants transition to build electric vehicles, we'll have to see. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the deadline here for getting a deal done? And give me a sense of what you think the likelihood is of doing this without a work stoppage. So like I said, the contract expires September 14th. And then, you know, the next day they could decide whether they want to extend the contract or strike. Mm -hmm. Um, That would be against the lead company, 
We don't know who that is yet. We'll figure that out in early September. Um, you know, I think it's highly likely just given what I've been hearing. But, you know, the UAW, their consistent message is that a strike is up to the companies. They've made it clear. I don't know if, if anybody has paid attention to the UAW's Instagram or Twitter, <laughs> but they are being very vocal mm-hmm. um, and marketing, you know, what they what they want to see heavily. Um, so the automakers shouldn't be surprised by it is 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 what they say. Um, but I, I do think it's very likely we did have a 40 day strike in 2019 sure. against General Motors, yeah. um, which was a long strike <laughs> for all of strike. us. Yeah. So I don't know if it'll go that long, but you know, the auto workers I talked to say they're many of them say they are ready um, for that. Uh, they're ready to go twice as long if they have to. Others are, are nervous, Yeah, you know? So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Kaylee Hall of the Detroit News. Great to have you here to talk about the UAW and Detroit 3 auto worker uh, negotiations. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. It's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about two really cool festivals, the Concert of Colors, as well as the Bangladeshi Festival that is coming to Warren. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.